Uh, This is the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was... Uh, For Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word that you give to us. It's a treasure uh, to us. And uh, we long for your word to live in our hearts, to shape how we think and who we are as persons, to inform our words, our emotions, every part of who we are. And so uh, we um, open ourselves for you to speak to us with power by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll notice how uh, the passage I just read begins in verse 30 by saying, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And uh, that little phrase uh, gives you a picture of uh, basically what's happening for the remainder of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We saw in the last chapter that Jesus went away on a retreat to the northern villages of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And, uh, and they are now walking south from, the, that was the most northern place they'd been, south toward Jerusalem, which will, and their journey will end during the Passover week. And on this walk south, Jesus has re- repeatedly told his disciples that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified by the chief priests and the elders. They're going to want to have him killed. And for whatever reason, this message has not been sinking in with the disciples. And uh, maybe they thought, oh, Jesus is being hyperbolic or he's being metaphorical about how he's going to die. And, or maybe it's just they don't want to hear it. You know when someone tells you something and you're just like, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't hear it. And maybe it'll go away if I just don't think about it. Um, well, uh, they knew uh, Jesus was the Messiah. And their imaginations were wandering off on these fantasies about what's it going to be like? We are the closest advisors to the Messiah, the king of the whole world. What is that going to mean for us? And as it turns out, on this 130-mile walk from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, they were not preparing themselves for Jesus' trial and crucifixion. They were arguing about who's the greatest among them. And maybe they were picturing themselves in Jerusalem, you know, that uh, there's going to be 12 thrones and we're going to be there with Jesus on the throne. So maybe that's what they thought they were walking into. Actually, in the next chapter, uh, James and John are going to come to Jesus and ask him, hey, can we sit on your right hand and your left? They are clearly picturing themselves sitting on thrones with Jesus. 
And so I think this passage gives us a glimpse into one of the most twisted aspects of the human heart, which is pride. And traditionally, theologians have said that pride was the original source of all the evil in the world. It's how the devil fell, and it's the thing that makes people resist giving God the glory that is due him. And so today we're going to look at some of the, uh, the subtleties of pride that we learn about from this passage. And in particular, I want to point out four things that pride resists. You know, pride has a certain hardness to it. And so it resists certain things. And there are four things I want to point out. This is what they are. That pride resists the gospel. Pride resists other people's greatness. Pride resists serving others. And pride resists the least among us specifically children. Okay, four things that pride resists. The gospel, other people's greatness, serving others, and the least people among us, especially children. And my hope is that the Lord would use these words to call each of us to repentance about the pride that's in each one of our hearts. Okay, so four thoughts for us today. The first is this. Pride resists the gospel. Pride resists the gospel. Now, the reason I say pride resists the gospel is because in this passage, there are two moments when the disciples are silent. They, uh, and they don't want to talk. And their silence shows a resistance within their hearts that they don't, uh, um, things that they don't want to talk about. And the two things that they don't want to hear about, they don't want to talk about, are the cross and their own sin. And two things that you absolutely have to understand if you're going to believe the gospel is the cross and your own sin, and they don't want to talk about either of those. So how does pride resist the gospel? Two ways. The first is pride doesn't want to hear about the cross. Pride doesn't want to hear about the cross. And you see that there in verse 31. It says, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus' saying about the cross is clearly not computing with the disciples, and that's because Jesus' death on the cross does not make sense to a proud heart. And why is that? Because what does a proud heart think? What do proud hearts think? Well, a proud heart thinks, I'm good. I'm a moral person. I'm capable of taking care of myself. And I don't need anyone. Pride has a very high view of ourselves, of, it, of itself. But the cross says, you are by nature so lost that you could never save yourself. Your heart is far more evil by nature than you or anyone knows. And you deserve to be punished by God. But Jesus, in pity for you, came to take your place on the cross. Pride hates being pitied. It says, I don't need pity from anyone. And if, if our hearts say that, then Jesus dying on the cross will never make sense to us. Pride doesn't want to hear about the cross. It's only the broken, the helpless, the shamed, the one who says, I can't fix myself, I need help, is the one who's willing to hear about the cross. And uh, not only does the proud not admit that they need uh, Jesus to die for them, but they also don't want to go and die with Jesus. And I think this is probably important information, especially if you're a new Christian. You know, when you uh, first become a Christian and you say, you know, I realize that Jesus loves me and I'm going to have my sins forgiven. And I, 
he can change my life. He can bring the Holy Spirit into my life, and he's going to give me a community. He brings me into a family, and I'm going to be a part of God's family. I'm going to have new friends, a new community, and, and God's power is going to be working me. I'm going to probably have new success that I'm going to have in my life. And of course, Jesus does give all those things to his people, but it usually ends up being a lot messier than what we pictured. That's true about Jesus. You know, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but the only way to get there was through the cross. And his disciples, you know how they wanted to sit on thrones when they were picturing themselves going to Jerusalem? They are sitting on thrones. But they were going to have to suffer and die before they got to those thrones. That's the part they weren't picturing. That's the same for you and me. The blessing that God wants to bring in our lives is going to be through this path of suffering in the cross. It's a lot more messy than we anticipated. And so pride resists the gospel because it doesn't want to hear about the path of the cross. And that's because of a second thing that pride doesn't want to hear about, is pride also doesn't want to hear about our own sin. And so along you know, this journey, they're going south, and they, they stop in Capernaum, and they go into a house together. And in this house, Jesus asks this probing question of his disciples. You see it there in verse 33, where it says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What was that conversation you guys were having on the path? And in the Gospel of Luke, it says, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he knew what was happening in their minds and their hearts. They'd been arguing about who's the greatest disciple. And you see that they love talking about their own greatness. They don't love talking about their own sin. So when Jesus asked this probing question about what's happening in their hearts, what is their response? You see it there in verse 34. But they kept silent. It's the second thing that they didn't want to talk about. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has a, a famous chapter in Mere Christianity on pride. It's called The Great Sin. And one of the things that Lewis points out about pride is that it's uh, the sin that we hate most in others but that we see the least within ourselves. And so this is how Lewis puts it. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular. <laughs> you know, pride, when we see it in people, we just can't stand it. You know, they're, they're arrogant and they're bragging about how great they are and they're talking about all their accomplishments. And so there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. You know uh, what the disciples must have been thinking about each other. You know, they're walking, they're having an argument about who's the greatest. And you know they were judging each other about that. You know, like Thomas thinks he's the greatest. He is so arrogant that he thinks that. While they're talking about how great they are, they don't see it in themselves, but they see it in each other. And so pride doesn't want to talk about our own sins, but pride does love to hear about other people's sins a juicy little morsel about someone else's failing. We love to hear that because it makes us feel superior to them. And so that's why pride resists the gospel. And you might wonder, why don't more people believe in Jesus? You know, maybe you felt that in your own life. Jesus offers people, he says, I'm gonna forgive all your sins. I'm gonna give you eternal life. I'll give you my Holy Spirit so you become a more loving person and you're gonna, you can have a church community and you can have a family. Why would anyone not want all that? Pride doesn't want it. Pride resists the gospel. And so the first thing we see in this passage is that pride resists the gospel because it doesn't wanna talk about either the cross or our own sin. 
But the second thing that we see in this passage is that also pride resists other people's greatness. Pride resists, stands against the greatness of other people. And, uh, and you see that in the second part of verse 34, where it says, For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And when they were arguing with one another, I don't think they were saying, no, you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. I think you're the greatest. That's not what they're saying. It's really sad reality to not want other people to be great. And, you know, likely for all of us, the people that we're going to admire most in our life are people who make others great. You know, I, I thought about that. My, my dad died a few years ago, and at his memorial, there were some people that I had known my whole life that were there and spoke at, at the memorial, and they said, you know, Tony, he, he saw my potential. He gave me opportunities. He believed in me, and it really set me on the course for my whole life. And, they, and here at the end of his life, they loved him for that. And, you know, some of you have had coaches or mentors who they, they were like, they were the ones who saw my potential, and they invested in me because it, that's what coaches do is they don't make themselves great. They make the players great. They make other people great. And this is such a beautiful thing. That's why we love and adore great coaches. But pride doesn't want other people's greatness. And C.S. Lewis mentions the competitive nature of pride in his chapter. This is what he says. If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. And that fact that everyone's pride is in competition with each other, this isn't about something that happens out in the world. This is happening in the church. In this passage, it's happening in the church, among the disciples of Jesus. And actually, uh, you know, Christian writers have written a lot about pride throughout history. And so uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer also wrote about this passage. He has a little book on Christian community called Life Together. And I'm going to read to you what Bonhoeffer says, something very similar to the competitive nature that Lewis is pointing out. This is what he says. At the very beginning of Christian fellowship, there is engendered an invisible, often unconscious, life and death contest. You know, when you're in a group of people, there's a contest happening. There arose a reasoning among them. This is enough to destroy a fellowship. Hence, it is vitally necessary that every Christian community from the very outset face this dangerous enemy squarely and eradicate it. There is no time to lose here. For from the first moment when a man meets another person, he is looking for a strategic position he can assume and hold over against that person. All this can occur in the most polite and even pious environment. I love that. You know, Christians are so pious and so nice, but they're really, there's one upsmanship happening, you know, with their nice Christianese. But the, uh, but the important thing is that a Christian community should know that somewhere in it, there will certainly be a reasoning among them which of them should be the greatest. It is the struggle of the natural man for self-justification he finds it only in comparing himself with others, in condemning and judging others. So you hear that competition, the comparing. Pride is incredibly destructive to a community. And we live in a culture that absolutely champions 
pride. I mean, we have parades about pride. It's not only that we don't think it's a sin, we think it's something that needs to be stoked and stirred within us because it's going to make us powerful, which is an incredible temptation. And so pride will not just stay in our hearts and minds, it comes out. And so that leads to our next point. So pride resists the gospel, doesn't want to hear about the cross, doesn't want to hear about its own sin, our own sin. And pride resists the greatness of other people. It has a competitive spirit. But both of those lead to a third thing, that pride resists serving others. Pride resists serving others. And you see that there in verse 35 where it says, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says the opposite of pride is being a servant, taking the last or the lowest position. And I've I've talked recently about the, the rule of St. Benedict, um, and I, there's probably something in me that if I hadn't met my wife, Shannon, I would have been drawn to be a monk or something like that, and, you know, to read and pray and study, and, and I love reading the, the rule of Benedict, and, uh, and this saying from Jesus was a centerpiece in the monastic uh, life, um, and there's an early chapter on humility in the, in the rule where it talks about the way to greatness is humility, and they have these 12 steps that you have to go. It's like the downward steps to greatness to become more humble, and they're pretty brutal. I mean, it's like no laughing, no talking too much. You know, you think you're too excited about yourself, you know, and it's just like creating humility in you. But one of the things that impresses me most about the rule is how ruthless it is about pride. And so when you become a brother in the monastery, you know, you start at the bottom. And, uh, and you have to learn service and obedience to crush your pride. And so, you know, you have everyone's superior to you, and you have to offer them obedience. And, and so if you come into the monastery and you're a woodworker and you think, you know, I'm, I, this monastery sure is lucky that I'm here because of my woodworking skills, and they just smell an ounce of that. You are pulling weeds and cleaning toilets until that is just fully been, you know, uh, uh, cleansed out of you. You are going to be a servant. And one of the key steps to humility was obedience. And it has a whole chapter on obedience very early in the rule. And I'm going to read one paragraph. This is what it says. The first step of humility is unhesitating obedience which comes naturally to those who cherish Christ above all. When you love Jesus, you love obedience. Such people as these immediately put aside their own concerns, abandon their own will, and lay down whatever they have in hand, leaving it unfinished. With the ready step of obedience, they follow the voice of authority in their actions. This very obedience, however, will be acceptable to God and agreeable to men only if compliance with what is commanded is not cringing or sluggish or half-hearted, but free from any grumbling or any reaction of unwillingness. Obedience trains us. Obedience puts to death pride. Now, I know some of you might think me reading that and say, oh, yeah, well, sure, you want people to be obedient. You're the senior pastor, and you want everyone to be obedient. But you know what? We're a Presbyterian church. And one of the reasons we're a Presbyterian church is it means that every single person in this church has to be obedient to someone. 
And that includes me, part of my ordination vows. I have to take a vow of subjection, is the language it uses, to the elders of this church. All the elders in this church have to take a vow of subjection to the other elders. I also take a vow of subjection to the other pastors in my presbytery who have authority over me, and I have to offer them obedience. Everyone in this church has to offer someone obedience. If you're a child, you have to offer your parents obedience. Wives are called to submit to their husbands in the, in the Christian home. The men in the church must obey their pastors and church leaders. If anyone's an employee, you have to be obedient to your boss. That's what are commanded in the scriptures. And all of us, our whole life is lived as an act of obedience to Christ, who is our master and our Lord, and we are to do whatever he says. If there is something in you that hates that, that is pride. Because obedience is about becoming a servant of others. And even as a pastor, the Bible says, I'm not your master. I am your servant. I'm here to serve this congregation. Now, you know, that leads to, there is some debate over the meaning of Jesus saying in this passage, because some of you have heard this passage described as servant leadership. Jesus is promoting servant leadership. And what does servant leadership mean? The servant leadership means the way that you lead others is by serving them, or does it mean the way you serve others is by leading them? You're like, well, let me do the math on that. What's the difference between those two? Well, I think they're both true. Any person in leadership should be willing to do acts of service. There should be no one in this church who says, there are tasks that are below me, menial tasks that I should not be doing. We should never have that spirit in the Christian community. But also... Leading people is service. Leading people is sacrifice. The way a husband serves his family is by leading them. When a husband takes responsibility for the needs of his family, it's both an act of leadership but also one of service. If he's passive in his leadership, he's not serving them, giving them the service they need. Or if you serve on the board of a nonprofit, Serving on the board of a nonprofit is both leadership and it's, both, and it's service. You're, you're uh, giving up time and resources for the sake of your community. And so Jesus is going to take these men that he's giving these commands to. You should be the last of all. You should be the servant of all. He's actually going to make them preachers and elders and decision makers and church planners and rulers of local and regional church bodies, and they're going to be overseers. They're not just going to wait on people. And so the big question around pride is, what's our motivation? Do we want to be leaders for ourselves, for our own egos? Or do we want to be leaders for the good of our neighbors and for the good of a community, to serve and sacrifice for a community? And it is a blessing when people lead and that when they take responsibility, when fathers take responsibility and, and, and men and women in the church take responsibility. And when communities have no leadership, they flounder. So the fact that someone aspires to leadership role is not an indication that they are proud. The Bible says it's noble to aspire to leadership in the church. So if pride resist serving others, what are some indications that a leader is proud? How do we know if a leader is proud? Well, one thing this passage says, if they're talking about how great they are all the time, that's a sign, okay? But I think Jesus gives us a concrete test in this passage, and so that's our final point. So what we've seen so far is that pride resists the gospel because it doesn't want to talk about the cross, and it doesn't want to talk about our own sin. And it resists other people's greatness because everyone's pride is in competition with each other and it resists serving and obeying and submitting to others. But the last thing we see in this passage is that pride resists 
the least among us, specifically children. Pride resists the least among us, specifically children. And, and you see that great saying from our Lord in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. I love how Jesus takes a little child up into his arms. And he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so Jesus gives a test. You will know if someone is proud based on whether they care about children. Do leaders in our church talk to the children in our church? Do they learn their names? Do they ask about what's happening in their lives? Do they care about the little ones? And why does that matter? It's Because what pride does, when pride comes into a room like this, you got a group of people here, pride immediately sizes up who are the important people. They figure out quick, pride figures out quickly who the important people are, and then everyone else just kind of disappears. And especially the least important people, and the least important, the least influential are the children. Jesus was not like that. When the Son of God came down from heaven, when he looked out on, out on the crowds of the human race, who did Jesus see? Who did he take notice of? Who was Jesus drawn to? Was it the important people? Was it church leaders and kings and the rich and the popular? Jesus saw the poor, the disabled, the lost, and we see in this passage, Jesus saw children. And he knew them, and he said, receive them. Take them up in your arms. Play with them. Make them laugh. Know their names. And among those crowds that Jesus saw, he also saw you and me. He saw us as if we were little children with all our flaws, all our sins, all our weakness. He had compassion. He spoke to us. He called us to himself. He listened to us. Jesus took us seriously. You know, that's what young people want. They want to be taken seriously. And Jesus took us seriously. What an amazing thing that this is, what the true God is like. He loves children, he loves the least, and he loved us. So it's by fixing our eyes on Jesus that we are set free from pride. Then we won't resist the gospel. We can face the cross in our own sins. Then uh, we won't need to make ourselves feel greater than other people because we know how loved we are in him, that we're secure and then uh, we will be willing to serve as he has served us. And we will see the children around us and we'll want to know their names because we're so amazed that Jesus has taken notice of us and wanted to know our names. So praise be to him. He's creating a kingdom, not of the proud, but a kingdom of the humble because our king is the humble king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for these words that your kingdom is not like our world. It's not like our flesh. It's not like our hearts. It's so different. And the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus' words paint a picture of, we long to be a part of that. And we long for our hearts and our minds and our lives to match that kingdom. And so, uh, Lord... Save us from our pride. Clothe us with humility, kindness, and compassionate hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.